Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Philanthropy is one of the most important tools for families to strengthen their communities, establish the permanence of their legacy, and communicate their values, both inwardly and outwardly. What happens when the organizations that receive family resources don't fulfill the donor's intent? What if the charities mean well but aren't effective? What if the charities use the resources for something else entirely? Well, these issues came up in a big way when the Robertson family of A&P supermarket fame disagreed with the way Princeton handled the proceeds of a $35 million gift. Author Doug White is going to lay out the case, explain where it went wrong, and give us some lessons on how to avoid future quagmires around donor intent. Doug is a longtime leader in the nation's philanthropic community. He's a five-time author, teacher, and an advisor to nonprofit organizations and philanthropies. He's co-chair of the Foolproof Foundation's Walter Cronkite Project Committee and a governing board member of the Secular Coalition of America. Welcome aboard, Doug. And good morning to you, Fraser. It's good to be with you. I'm thrilled to have you on because we're going to be talking about something that I think kind of goes by the wayside when people think about philanthropy, especially high net worth and ultra high net worth families. And that is how you govern and understand what happens with what you're giving away and what you're trying to achieve. And I stated in the opening, you've got real expertise around this. So I'm excited to have you on. Maybe tell us a little bit about your background and the services you provide. I got into this about 45 years ago when I was asked to raise money for my high school. And I was asked to ask six people for $1,000. And there was a capital campaign. I had never done anything like that, but I liked my high school. And I went out and talked to these people. It was individually visiting people. And each one of them said yes. And I didn't really think that was a big deal because I didn't know what would be a big deal or not a big deal. But I came back and they told me this was impressive. And I didn't so much think that the idea of them saying yes was impressive as I was struck by how committed they were to the mission of the school and how they wanted to pay it back and how connected they felt on an emotional and psychic level. I was in my late 20s at the time, and it was really a game changer for me, Fraser, because I felt for the first time that there's really something really big beyond me. When you're growing up, you're thinking about what you want to be, sometimes how much money you want to make, what kind of impression you want to make on the world. You want to be the president. You want to be this or that. So I was in that mindset. And then all of a sudden, I was talking to people who really felt there's something beyond them. And it didn't have to be this particular charity, the school. It could be anything. There was this cause that they said they wanted to support, and they wanted to support it for reasons that had really nothing to do with things that were tangible. They wanted to give an opportunity to other people so that they could lead a better life. That could be in the educational arena. That could be the ability to go to a museum. That could be the ability to go to a hospital and have expenses paid. There are a variety of causes where philanthropy can make an impact. But that was the first time, and it was profound for me, 
so profound that I just it changed my life. And so for the last 45 years, I've been pursuing this idea of philanthropy and connecting philanthropists to nonprofits. You started out really in that development role where you garner assets and help people get the resources they need to achieve these causes. And your career's taken a little bit of a different tack where you're advising the charities and some of these families in terms of the governance around the gifts and so on. How did that come to pass? Well, during those years, those decades, really, I got my feet into a lot of areas of the nonprofit and philanthropic worlds. And just as an aside here, Fraser, let me just make this distinction. From my perspective, we say nonprofits and philanthropy is kind of one jumbled up idea. And for me, they're really not the same. They're in the same broader world, but a philanthropist or a philanthropy is the process of providing resources for the betterment of humanity. Nonprofits are the organizations through which that betterment is often expressed. Most people who are philanthropists do so through an established philanthropic or or should say nonprofit entity. The idea with philanthropists is to basically give away the money. The nonprofit, its job is to get the money. I just wanted to be clear about how I look at those two words and what the distinction is, and yet they are connected. But how that happened over time was I began working with a charity, another private school, not my own, where I went out and talked to people about them giving us money. And I would talk to them about how great the school was and what their impact could be with their gifts and so forth. And that was very satisfying. It was also satisfying in the sense that it was basically a a liberal arts education. Every donor has a story. Every donor has a reason for having gotten to where he or she is in life. And most of them are very, very happy to tell you about it and even show you about it. I've been on farms where I've been in mud in my Gucci shoes, and I've been on a ship, an oil container, and I've been on an airplane, and donors just want to tell their stories. And you've got to live their stories. You've got to be there. You've got to be interested in what they're doing. It's got to be sincere. There's, by the way, a very important part of fundraising. That is the sincerity part of it and being interesting yourself when you're talking to donors, but also being interested sincerely in what they're doing. So I did that for a long time and in various ways, but then I moved over into more of what a philanthropist wants to do. And that really came about in full flesh when I wrote the book on the Princeton case. And I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But basically, the idea was, okay, donors really have a stake in this that goes beyond the emotional, or at least it's different from just the emotional. The emotional is what drives it, but it's also an expectation that they have about what that money is going to be used for when they make the gift. And I think that, again, a lot has changed in the last decades. And what has changed, in my view, that's very tangible, is donors are expecting a lot more from their gifts. They're expecting a lot more transparency. They're expecting a lot more communication from the organizations they give to. And that's an area right now where charities, I think, have a big challenge because many of them don't really spend a lot of time on the follow-up on gifts. I often make this analogy. It's a little like dating and marriage. You spend a lot of time trying to acquire the gift to get the donor to say yes. And that's a long cultivation period. It's really wonderful and it's exciting. But once the gift is made, and we're talking about large gifts here where they are either endowed or there's a long-term repercussion of the gift. 
the actual relationship with the donor once he or she is a donor is even more important than the cultivation period. Like dating is really exciting and wonderful and it's all great. But the marriage part of it isn't so easy, but it's more important. It's longer and it's more challenging. And so it requires a lot of stewardship. It requires a lot of attention. And charities have not done as much in that area. You find charities who are looking for fundraisers, and they will say, how much did you raise at this place or whatever? There's never a question about what did you do to steward the gift? What did you do to make sure the donor was happy with the gift five years or 10 years later? Because that's just not part of the vernacular, and it should be. It has to be. So I started to get more and more involved with donors' perspective as time passed. So that disconnect that you're talking about that can develop really writ large in the Princeton case, and it was such an important case, you wrote a book about it. Give us a little bit of the facts behind it and where things went awry and where this demarcation really hit home and the problems that it caused. Bottom line, the donor became very dissatisfied with Princeton. We know that there was a conflict that developed, and it developed rather early on. In 1961, the heiress of the A&P fortune. Now, for a lot of your listeners, A&P might not sound very familiar, but for a half century, it was the largest grocery chain in the United States. And now it's bankrupt. or It went out of business about a decade ago. Even the shell of it is gone. But it was a hugely successful business. And when the original owner died, he left a trust that after his grandchildren died, the trust would be dissolved. And this woman was a beneficiary, one of eight or nine beneficiaries of that trust. I think that whole amount that she got was close to $100 million. She and her husband donated $35 million of AMP stock to Princeton. They established a foundation. So it wasn't directly to Princeton. It was a foundation. And Princeton was the only beneficiary. So Princeton included that number in its endowment. The idea was to endow the graduate program at the Woodrow Wilson School, an international relations school, one of the most famous in the United States. Excellent reputation. A lot of its graduates you'd know. It's just one of the best. And they wanted to establish an endowment so that anybody who got accepted didn't have to pay anything. So $35 million was donated for this purpose. This was 1961. In 2002, the son, actually the siblings, all of them, but really it was the son who drove this, Bill Robertson, sued Princeton. And he said, you're not doing what my father wanted. Now, by this time, that $35 million had grown to about $900 million wow. in 2002. Yeah, it was huge. He said that you're not spending the money where it should be spent. You're spending it in other parts of the university. And I'm just very dissatisfied, and my father was too. Princeton took the position that, you know, as Princeton, you might expect, they'd say, we're not doing anything wrong. And by the way, your father was really quite happy. And so I don't know what your problem is, is basically what they said. And the reason I can even go that far in, in interpreting what they said was because they did say Bill Robertson was basically a ne'er-do-well who didn't have anything to do other than bother them, that he was just a child of privilege and was just being a pain in the neck. They said as much. And I, that quote, in the book. And the person who told me that position, it's mine, but that person was the vice president of public relations at the university at the time. So his comment was pretty important. 
But it was in the research for another book prior to that that I had ended up talking to him about the case. And he said his father was upset since the 1970s. And I said, that's not what Princeton says. And he said, well, it's true and I can prove it. And I said, okay, well, for that book, there was a book prior to that, the nonprofit challenge. I said, if you show me that information, I can include that in that book. But he was a bit of a procrastinator. It just didn't happen. So when I, that book came out, I couldn't say that his father was unhappy. All I could say was that his son said his father was unhappy, but there was no documentation at that point. When I came to writing the book about Princeton, I said, look, I need this documentation. You can't be fooling around with this anymore. And he said, absolutely, no problem. And so I do have, still in my possession, actually, a lot of the original correspondence between his father and Princeton. And there is absolute definite proof that as early as the 1970s, he was very unhappy because Princeton wasn't doing what he thought. Now, what did he think should happen? What the idea was, was to actually send the graduates to basically the Foreign Service. Now, in 1961, the gift was in March of 1961. Kennedy had just been elected as president, elected in 60, took office in January. And within two months, his brother-in-law, Sergeant Shriver, he asked Sergeant Shriver to establish and that happened. This is the Cold War. Kennedy's young, vibrant. There's a lot of, hey, we can take the world by storm here and promote democracy. And that was the idea behind the gift. We're going to promote democracy. And so in order to do that, we want to get good students coming out of this great school. It wasn't known as a great school then because it was so new, but they were really, really good, which happened. But as time went on, it turned out a lot of those students didn't go into government service or even to foreign relations or anything like that. And the father was very upset within a few years. And there's correspondence to absolutely definitively prove that fact. So on this count, I know Princeton was a little disingenuous in saying there was nothing wrong. So time passes. As I said before, there was a foundation. Three seats were occupied by the family. Four seats were occupied by Princeton. And this was before the rules about foundations were really established. That came about in 1969. So the IRS was still trying to figure out its way in trying to make this happen, too, from a nonprofit perspective. They did. And so the three family members sitting on the board, Bill said that they were told very little about what the organization was doing, that Princeton with the other four seats, was making all of the decisions and not really informing the family. And so it came to a boiling point in 2002, June of 2002, he filed the lawsuit. And Princeton at that point said, no, this is ridiculous. We have been doing everything that the donor said. They still say this, by the way. But what broke the case open, because he brought this lawsuit forward, there was a woman who worked in the office. It was unrelated to the Robertson gift. She was seeing some irregularities in the way endowment monies were being allocated and spent. He brought that to the attention of the school. And at that point, this is before the lawsuit from Robertson came about, they said, don't worry about it. So she didn't, but she's public with it. A couple of months later, maybe six months later, this lawsuit comes to bear. And she says, hold it. If this was happening to me, the exact same thing, but it's happening on a huge scale, now, with the Robertsons, I'm going to go tell the Robertson attorneys about this. That's what she did. And as a result, a lot more information came about. The idea there was that they were not stewarding the gift. 
Of course, the donor had died. A lot of charities think that's the end of the stewardship process. But the children were really very involved. And this is important when it comes to these kinds of gifts. You have to make sure the family members are also satisfied and happy. So they were not. After some years, six and a half years, they settled out of court. And that tells me neither side had the really big upper hand. And by that, I'm really saying that Princeton did not have the big upper hand. They had an argument, but it wasn't a slam dunk. They settled out of court, and this is what happened. $45 million was spent by each side for legal fees. $45 million each side. And so I think they were both getting tired from a financial perspective. But on top of that, Princeton said, okay, we'll take another $50 million and set that aside. It was a five-year payout of $10 million a year. I think that was about the schedule to establish a whole new foundation. The Robertson Foundation for Government is what it's called. You go do that. And we won't have anything to do with it. But at the same time, you're not going to have anything to do with this amount, the original amount that your parents gave. The foundation was dissolved, and the money that was left was put into the endowment at Princeton. And Princeton says that money is still being used for the Woodrow Wilson School. I have no doubt that it is. But the point is, this was six and a half years of true, true hell for both the family and Princeton. And at the very end of my research for this, I asked Bill Robertson, this was a lot of money, a lot of heartache. You're really angry. Was there anything that could have been done to stop this or to make this not happen? And he said, yes, there was. Well, I didn't expect him to say that because he was so upset with the way the money was spent. I said, well, what is that? He said, if they had only respected me more, which I thought was both simple and profound. And that's all part of what stewardship is about. You respect your donor. You communicate with your donor. I was just going to say that is just a breakdown in communication. And it probably felt like a tone of arrogance and an ownership of the funds as opposed to a stewardship of the funds attitude that pervaded. And ultimately, that's probably what led to all of this. Princeton's detractors use the word arrogance a lot. And their attorneys did too. But you'd expect that from the attorneys. But there were a lot of people who said this is nothing more than arrogance. A multi-billion dollar corporation, which even though it's a nonprofit, Princeton is that. And you can see how they could feel like they were going to get their way on this. Now, that said, they have a high degree of respect for Princeton. These people are in the upper echelons, not only in the educational world, but also in terms of the way they are fundraising. And they haven't told me in particular, but I have heard through the grapevine that they have reevaluated their policies for this kind of thing. And they did take this seriously. I don't think they were the bad guy that the family said they were. And I told Bill Robertson this at the very beginning. I said, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this to find a truth. I'm more interested in the way nonprofits and philanthropists should communicate than I am flying your flag on this. As it turns out, I think he had a very strong case. And I'm glad to see that there's this new foundation that's going forward. I have to say that Princeton is amazing in terms of its fundraising and now its stewardship and its communication with its supporters. So one of the things that you do in your practice is that you advise families on this so that they can avoid having, let's call it a $90 million 
bad surprise and the resources and time to make sure that their donative purpose is followed by the recipient charity. What are some of the lessons that you take from the Princeton case when you're advising families if they're on the precipice of making a big gift and they want to make sure that the intent is followed and at the same time that the recipients have the flexibility to use the gift in a professional way? That is multidimensional. And it's a great question, but it really goes to the different facets of families or donors. The first thing to find out is what the donor wants to do. And this involves understanding his or her values, what area of the philanthropic world the person wants to actually support. And then you start to whittle it down to different organizations, or if there is no organization where they want to establish a foundation or whatever. But then if you're working with an organization, you want to be sure the organization can really make good on its promises. Now, a gift agreement is signed by both parties. And so both the charity and the donor are agreeing to something. And we've been hearing a lot about how charities are, like with Princeton, not following through with what the donor expected over time. So the donor has to be very careful. When I taught at NYU, I brought in, as part of my course on ethics and board governance, the former head of the Charities Bureau at the New York State Attorney General's office. That office oversees charities. A great fellow, and still with us, but he was getting along in years at the time, and he was getting very commercial. And he would not, if he were to write a gift agreement, write a gift agreement for fewer than 50 pages. Most gift agreements are just a page or two or three. By the way, the Princeton agreement was five pages and two of that, which is late kind of stuff that didn't have anything to do with the gift itself. But the idea, he said, was to make sure that you can basically nail down pretty much everything. The thing is, though, that you can't nail down everything. You can't know what's going to happen in the future. I'm working on a case right now, advising on a case. It's a case in Hanover, Dartmouth, where someone left money for the golf course. Well, the golf course closed. Dartmouth closed the golf course some years ago. And the case just got through the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, about two weeks ago, where they held up Dartmouth's end of the position. And Dartmouth is not using the money for the golf course. They're using it to support the golf team. But the gift agreement said it's going to maintain the golf course. That's what it says. It's in pure black and white. There's no getting around it. So the donor, I think, did his job of saying, okay, I want to be sure this actually comes through. But the attorney general's office, what happens with a charity when something can't be used for the purpose it was designated for, the charity can go to the state attorney general's office, this is in any state, and ask for something called a Cypre ruling, which allows the charity to use the money for something as close to as possible as the original gift. They got that. The family was upset with the attorney general's ruling on that, but then it went to the Supreme Court. They actually sided with Dartmouth on the case. The attorney for the family will say, this means that no donor should ever give money to Dartmouth. (laughs) He was taking a pretty strident position on this, but I can see where he's coming from because the written word doesn't mean anything, was basically his point. So to get back to your question, you've got to be, as a donor, pretty clear about what you're trying to say, be as specific as possible. And on top of that, you've got to be sure that there's some commitment on the 
organization's part beyond what's on the word. This is something that we don't do yet. I do, but organizations and philanthropists generally don't say, look, what is it about your history that will give me the impression that you'll make sure this gift goes forward? I can go in there for the donor, even if the donor is anonymous at that point. I can go into the charity and say, I want to kick the tires and find out what your policies are. I want to talk to other donors. I can do all that stuff without the donor finding out. And I know the questions to ask. So the key thing is to make sure that the donor is as specific as possible and can then get a sense from the organization's history whether they can be counted upon to actually follow up on what they've agreed to. But as you can see with the Dartmouth case, I hate to say this, that's my alma mater. and I don't like to say bad things about it. I think it's a great place. But by the same token, and I actually golf too there, so it's even more personal. But I feel like, see, the question for me at Dartmouth is, okay, so the Supreme Court and the Attorney General's office said, no, Dartmouth had the right to do what it did. And they weren't going to open the golf course again, but what they wanted to do was take the money that had been given for it to be given to the foundation that the donor had established, give it back in a sense. They're not doing that, and they could do that. This is the ethical part of the thing. It's beyond the legal part. And that is to say, okay, you won the legal game, but really, what's the right thing to do here? And the right thing to do, and Dartmouth could afford this, they could give the three and a half or four million dollars back to the foundation, not miss a thing, and do the right thing. That's what I'm talking about right now with in response to your question. In addition to trying to anticipate what could go wrong in the future and what you want to have happen, you want to get a sense of the organization's ethos. Do they have a history of doing the right thing that isn't required by law? And it could be as simple as saying, okay, do you have other information that you send out other than the 990? You're required to do the 990. You're not required to do anything else. But do you do something else? And it's that kind of outreach to your constituency, but in a way, really, to society in general, saying, we are a player in this very important segment of society. We're going to honor that space that we occupy, that philanthropic sector of society, that the nonprofits play such an important role. And we're going to do what we can to be transparent. We're going to do what we can to be as honest as possible. We're going to be out there talking to our donors, even though it's not required. So it's that kind of feel you want to get as a donor before you really make a really large gift. Maybe another way to frame this is it strikes me that everything's hunky-dory. The personalities are all accounted for when the gift is made. A lot of it is establishing what the culture of the governance system is in place at the entity level to make sure that that communication survives turnover and that the personalities that are involved early when they leave or die, that that same ethos that you're talking about persists going forward. To me, one of the questions that I would come up with is to say, okay, you know, what happens if the head of plan giving or whomever leaves the institution? Who are we dealing with? What are we dealing with? So that the ethos behind the gift continues. In the Dartmouth case that you're talking about, it would strike me that a joint brief to the attorney general might have solved a lot of problems there as opposed to having litigation. It's like, look, we have to close the golf course. It's expensive. It's not a good use of funds, et cetera. But we're going in a different direction that is as close as possible to the meaning of it. Just some conversation around that and maybe a joint effort in front of the attorney general 
might have really solved that problem. Does that make sense? Or am I being naive, a babe in the woods, as it were, as to how these decisions are made? It, that's the case need more babes in the woods because you're saying something, and as you're saying, and I'm hearing inside your head, you're saying, well, this is probably too simple to be true or too obvious to be true or whatever. And sometimes that's the route to take. I don't believe this had to be this way. It didn't have to be the lawsuit of principle didn't have to be that way. It takes conversation. It takes communication. Even in legal issues, it takes communication, and that can supplant so many problems. My feeling is very strong that you're right. That conversation is always a very good idea. But when you get the lawyers involved, and I'm not disparaging lawyers to play a hugely useful, important role in society and, and in this process as well. But when you get the lawyers involved, you're having a different conversation. It's not like, let's say what we can do right. It's like, what can we do that's legal? And we want to avoid doing what's illegal. And sometimes, often, because I taught ethics at NYU in Columbia, the right thing to do is not always defined by what the legal thing to do is. So that conversation that you're describing could take place. In planned giving, especially when you're talking about gifts that are going, or any endowed gift, but any gift that's going to have an impact after a lifetime or more, you want to make sure as a charity, going back on the other side, because the charity also has to be careful of some things too. The thing I tell planned giving directors or fundraisers in general is, if you take an endowed gift and you say, this is what you're going to do, you have to understand that you're going to obligate future generations of administrators at this university or this charity to that event. And so you've got to be prepared. They have to be prepared and you have to prepare them. And what you're saying goes right down that line. What kind of can we have to make sure that communication is made? One thing I do also, and it's funny because this is what donors don't want to hear, is to say, let's avoid the words in perpetuity. You see this all the time in the gift agreement. Perpetuity has a meaning. It's got a real meaning. It's got a dictionary meaning. It's got a legal meaning. And it's not what people think. And that is to say, a long time. What it means is forever. And so if you say something's in perpetuity, it's going to go on for as long as we can imagine. A good example of a problem that arose from this was when the New York Philharmonic played at Avery Fisher Hall at Lincoln Center. Well, Avery Fisher Hall was funded by Avery Fisher back in early 70s. And I think it was a 15 million gift that he made, and that was in perpetuity. So the late 2000s come along, let's say around 2005 or 2006, and Lincoln Center says, this place is falling apart. And so we need to refurbish it. It went back to the family. The family said, nah, we're not interested. Go away. And by the way, you have to keep the name because that's in the gift agreement. It's in perpetuity. So Lincoln Center is kind of stuck. They found the donor, David Geffen. I think it's $100 million outright and $100 million in his bequest. I don't know exactly, but a $200 million commitment to refurbish Avery Fisher Hall. It's now known as Geffen Hall. But the point is that it wasn't a mystery in 1970 that Hall would need to be refurbished someday. Any building has a useful life. What we want to do is not create the expectation on the part of a donor or the family that anything is going to be in perpetuity. I always say for the useful life, if it's a building, or even if it's not, let's say it's a scholarship or a program or something in a charity, 
to have some ability for the trustees of the organization to revisit that after some period of time. And I know donors don't want to feel that way, but by the same token, the reality is that life goes on and changes are made at charities and donors have to realize that. So this is a balancing act is really what it is. It's not all donors. Charities have to be careful as well. So as we wind down here, what are some good lessons to take for wealthy families to really get themselves aligned and ready before they make that gift? What would be a couple of the the big upfront pieces of advice you'd give them before they go and sign the check and go through the gift agreement? Well, the first thing is make sure this is what you want to have done with your money. That is to say, if it's in the arts or it's in education or if it's in medical research or something like that, make sure this is your passion. I know that sounds obvious, but a lot of people really have to struggle through that process because they don't know. They're interested in a lot of things. They're good people. They want to help other people. There's All of that is there. But then we get down to brass tacks. This is where your money is going. So let's be sure that this is the area you want to spend it on. And then, as I say, check the tires. I do this in a way that most philanthropists cannot because I can go in there on their behalf anonymously, but say, okay, what is your track record of following donors' wishes? How are you following donors' wishes now? What are your communications with donors right now? What are you doing with that? What do you expect to happen in the next decade or two decades or three decades? I was talking to a development director. A donor wanted to make a gift to endow the English department at a school. And the director of development, I'll tell you, this was some years ago. This was maybe 15 or 20 years ago. I just love this guy because this was before this conversation really became so animated. He said, well, I would like to have in the gift agreement on behalf of the donor the clause where it allows us to change the purpose of the gift to something as close as possible. And what he wants to do is have an escape clause in the gift agreement so that they don't have to go through the Cypre process. And I said, well, why do you want to do that? He said, well, because I don't know that we're going to be teaching English 100 years from now. <laughs> Can you do that? I mean, like that's such a bedrock of our society right now. He said, yeah, it is. But so was slavery 150 years ago. So were horses to get around 150 years ago. So were all male schools. And so were all white schools. So I'm thinking, okay, the key thing here, though, Fraser, is to think outside the box, to think in some way that you're not going to be expected to think. That's another thing. We kind of get into our ways of thinking. What I'll do with the donor is say, well, think about this. What if they don't teach English in 50 years or 100 years because everybody's speaking Mandarin or whatever? I know it's unthinkable. I'm not saying that this is around the corner. But the point isn't so much to say, look, this is going to happen, but just give yourself the opportunity that it might, and to protect against that. So donors have to think not only right now, but in future generations. And then you really have to make sure that that gift agreement is pretty much airtight. But even the 50-page one won't do the trick. One final other example is the University of Chicago is right now in the middle of a lawsuit, a 50-page agreement, a $100 million lawsuit, $100 million was the gift. 50 pages detailed on every count. But they still find reason to be unhappy, the donors, and they want money back. They didn't give the entire 100. They gave two years worth of so a little over $20 million. But the point is they want to be uh, want $20 million back. They want 
to be relieved of the other $80 million as a pledge agreement. So the 50-page agreement isn't going to really guarantee that. That's why it's important to get the ethos of the school or the organization. But being as specific as possible, to think of all of the permutations out there as much as possible is a very important part of the process. I was going to say, I mean, I deal with trust documents that are hundreds of pages long. They try to deal with all the different permutations, but you can't figure it out. Life intervenes and things evolve and develop that can't be contemplated 50 years in the future, as you described. This is really fascinating stuff. Doug, we're going to find a way to have you back on again, because I think there are a lot of great lessons and the storytelling around these different institutions and the problems they face. I think there are a lot of great lessons here. And I think that some of the things that you were talking about can be really helpful to our listeners. How do we find you? How does someone who listens to this find you if they are facing this or interested in finding out more? What's the best way to get in touch? I'm old-fashioned, so email is the best way for me. I do have a website. It's dougwhite.net, but dwhitepg, D-W-H-I-T-E-P, at gmail.com is really the best way. Oh, one more thing. Phone is 202-255-6680. 202 from when I lived in Washington. Wonderful years there. I'm in New York right now. And the PG, by the way, dwhite, was not available. So the PG stands for planned giving, where I started out in fundraising some 40 years ago. That's the best way to get in touch with me. But I'm online. There are different stories about I've been interviewed in different places. It's pretty easy. And I do encourage people, even if they're not looking to hire someone, I'm very interested in talking with people just, hey, there's a little bit of help. Here's some thoughts. I have been so fortunate in my career. I'm not in big finance. So I'm not a multi-billionaire like people who are in finance can be. I'm waiting for my son to do that so I can continue. (laughs) But I have been very lucky. And so I take the position that if I can help someone else, I want to. I really, really want to. So a lot of my time is spent talking with donors without any expectation. Sometimes it works out to more, and that's fine. But it's a matter more of just helping them understand the world of nonprofits and philanthropy and getting them off of the right foot. Great stuff. Doug, thanks so much for being on. I'll have your information in the show notes and links to your books and have a great weekend. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.